Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, bright and early. Monday morning in San Francisco on October the 9th, 2023. About three months ago, a rather distant three months, I was in Gettysburg for the National Convention of the Braver Angels Group, uh, uh, a civic group trying to bring people together, trying to get Americans to talk to one another in a more civil and civilized way. It was an interesting event. I enjoyed it very much. In fact, we did some shows on it. And uh, I knew about Braver Andrews through a very impressive woman, Monica Guzman, who's been on the show before. She has a new book out. I never thought of it that way. And that's how I got introduced. Uh, Monica is one of the leading lights of Braver Angels. And when I was in Gettysburg, wandering around, I bumped into another very impressive woman, uh, called Alexa, Alexandra Hudson, uh, who was doing a number of interviews. Uh, and uh, she, like Monica Guzman, is in the business of trying to get us to talk in a more civilized way to one another. And she has a new book out about it. It's out tomorrow called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And I'm Thrilled and honored that uh, Alexandra Hudson is joining us from New York, from the Yale Club, Alexandra, where you're about to celebrate the launch of the book. Uh, is, is the Yale Club, do you think, the right sort of place to get Americans to talk in a more civilized way to one another? Are, aren't Americans angry about places like the Yale Club? Isn't that what's driving a lot of the incivility in America these days? It's interesting you ask about that. I recently, I, as part of this book uh, tour and pre-tour, uh, I visited a number of conferences, one of which was the Brave Angels one where we met in Gettysburg. I went to another one uh, later in the summer and I met this gentleman, uh, David McCullough, who runs something called the American Exchange Project. And what they do, it's, it's, it's a capstone, a, a, a week-long exchange after students graduate from high school to visit for one week a different place in America, a different um, socioeconomic class. And it, it rehumanizes, it bridges those divides in a really powerful way by showing uh, showing us how much we have in common. It's really easy to feel divided right now. And, we, and, and our media culture uh, vilifies, uh, you know, people of certain classes or educational backgrounds or, or, or wealth or statuses of wealth. Um, but but I, I really like this project and the initiative. It's, it's, it's the idea. It's very much in the spirit of what Braver Angels does. And what I do with my work is that just getting to know one another, um, physical proximity with one another, with people we disagree, helps to rehumanize us and not just accept the cheapened, simplistic, caricatures that the media likes to traffic in, that we're, we're rich, we're nuanced as human beings, we're complex, and we can't be reduced to who we vote for, where we live, um, our, the, the level of affluence we have. Um, that, that, and again, we have more in common than what separates us as Americans and as human beings. So is your analysis, uh, Lexi, that the problem is the media, that they're reducing us in ways that bring out our, 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 not our best qualities, but our worst qualities? Or is there something else going on? What's happening to make us lose civility towards one another? And, and maybe we, you can 
also explain whether or not there ever was civility in America. But what's gone wrong in 2023 in, in America? So this question of how do we do life together across difference is the most important question of our day. There's a reason that I wrote this book now. But you'll find this interesting, Andrew. It's not a new question. This is a timeless question. Uh, it's the defining question of the human experience. As long as we've been around as human beings, we've wanted to be in community. We're profoundly social as a species. We fully become human and we thrive in relationship with others. But we're also uh, morally and biologically defined by self-love. We're driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are, of our human condition, are intention. And that is why friendship, why community, why civilization itself is never a foregone conclusion. It's always, always fragile because of this duality in our nature. So there's much that is the same about this problem. It's a problem of the human condition, a problem of these competing forces within our nature between the social and the selfish. But to your point about our media culture, there is a lot that is different too about our current moment. For example, social media, you mentioned, like we're, we're constantly, um, and just the 24 seven news cycle, we're constantly reminded uh, by, by it's, it's ubiquitous by these forces that, that tell us, you know, the other is, is, is bad, is, is worse. Uh, and, and now, unlike past eras, one mistruth, one, one incendiary remark has the potential to reach and, and harm millions of people within moments, even if it's not true. What's that great Churchill line that the, 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 the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put his pants on. And that, you know, he, he said that 50, yeah. 70 years ago, but that's even more the case now in this era of social media. So I think it's helpful to, to um, put this question in its proper context because it gives us humility and how we approach it. No single public policy, no single leader is the single cause and, 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 and no single, there's not a, any single solutions either. No single book is going to come along and, and solve this issue. It's a really complex, timeless issue, but I do hope that my book helps us think more clearly about the role we each have in being part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, with all due respect, this sounds rather vague. It sounds like a, a TED speech. On the one hand, we're individuals. On the other hand, we're social. I mean, that's not exactly news, Lexi, is it? What's gone wrong in America in 2023, apart from social media? Is, is there something... When you compare the America of 2023 with the America of 1923 or 1823 or even 1723, is there something different about it in the way in which people talk to one another? There are many things that are that are different. One story I tell in the book is is about architecture and how our architecture reflect tells a story about what's different now versus then. Uh, there's this great essay called "From Front Porch." to Patio, written by a guy named Richard H. Thomas in a now defunct outlet called The Palimpsest. And he says that 100 years ago, homes in America were built with these great big front porches, these great big verandas where people would make a practice of sitting out at night and waving to their neighbors, waving to strangers. And that was a social statement that they chose to make with how they lived their lives, how they used their porches, that they were other focused and focused on the community, community oriented. Over the last 100 years, however, the front porch slowly moved around to the side of the home and to then to the back into the modern day 
patio. We are no longer in proximity with strangers and neighbors. It's fenced in. It's private. It's curated. You invite your family, your friends, just the people that you want to see uh, into, into, the, into the confines of your patio. And, and even more than that, um, you know, now we're inside of our home with air conditioning and television, all these more forces that are, 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 are drawing us away from one another. And this essay talks about how um, this architectural shift from the, from the front porch to the patio marks a cultural shift from being more community focused to being more individualistic and inward focused. And again, wanting to, 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 to just be around the people that, that we like. And it's so true. That is one thing that's different. It, it's really easy if we want to be isolated and to not be exposed to people who differ from us. It's easy to go from our homes to our cars, to our office and back again, and really not come into proximity with people that we differ from or or don't want to be around. And what I learned moving from Washington, D.C., a very divided moment in Washington, D.C., where I worked in federal government, and I saw firsthand the profound divisions in our country. After I left government and moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, five years ago, I saw this, this, this subversive, quiet revolution afoot in our country right now uh, that, is, that is trying to counter this atomized and divided status quo, this atomized status quo. Uh, from the front porch, I, 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 one of my first friends when I moved to Indianapolis came up to me and said, uh, introduced herself to me, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I'd never heard the word porch used as a verb before. So we went to her porch that afternoon and, and I realized that she was staging this subversive, quiet rebellion uh, from her front porch. She had curated people uh, from across race, across geography and town, across social class, across political belief, and just put us in a shared space together, not to talk about anything in particular, just to inhabit space and build social trust and build friendships that could maybe enable conversations about important things across important differences. And that is what we need more of. We need more uh, physical uh, shared spaces. And, and I realized that there are people across the country doing this with or without a front porch. They're choosing. Yeah, I have to admit, I don't, I mean, maybe in San Francisco, it's a particularly divided town. I don't see a lot of evidence myself. Um, you talk about great big verandas. We met in Gettysburg, of course, the site of the most terrible battle of the American Civil War, a war over lifestyle. It was a war in a sense, I guess, about verandas or a war uh, about lifestyle in the south those big verandas existed in the south you can go down south now and still see them um and of course they were fine for white people but not so much for slaves um your communitarianism it, it sounds very idealistic but where is it rooted are you suggesting that we are all really social people and if only we, someone comes up to us and say let's porch we'll suddenly lose all our individualism and get happy again <laughs> it's um, a lot of our crises that we're dealing with today, um, you know, the loneliness epidemic, deaths of despair, the opioid crisis, the suicide epidemic, these can all be traced back to this crisis, this interpersonal crisis where we're, um, we're not doing things together anymore. We have fewer friends than we used to reportedly uh, as, as Americans. And that's, and that's concerning. And so I, and there was this recent study out called the surprising power of social outreach um, in Scientific America that reported on this, that people are way more receptive to bids of affection 
and invitations, then we realize. A lot of people are hesitant to put themselves out there and it's hard to make new friends. It's, it's vulnerable, it's uncomfortable. And, and yet people really appreciate these, these bits of affection, these, these, um, these, these outreaches. And people like Joanna, my friend, uh, the portrait in chief in Indianapolis, Indiana. And you know, she reminded me a lot of my mother and my grandmother who lived there th this way as well, where they treated every person they meet as a profound gift. Um, every interaction was, was a gift and they wanted to maximize it. And they were just completely engrossed in, in the moment with the other, realizing this was a moment in time they would never have again. It's your right- Tell me a little bit more about your mother. I know uh, she, she's, she, she, uh, you, she was known as the the, or no, is known as the the manners lady. That's right. I um, my mother, as I discovered while writing this book, is um, one of four women who are internationally renowned experts in manners and etiquette who are named Judith. <laughs> my mother was the only one I knew growing up. She's called Judith the manners lady, but she's one of four. The, the most famous is probably Judith Martin, the, the, the Miss, Manor, Miss Manners, the Washington Post columnist. But there are two others in addition, in addition to my mother. So uh, my mother is obviously my favorite of these, of these Judiths in the courtesy biz, but she taught us our P's and Q's growing up. And she taught, and she cares about manners to the extent that they facilitate social interaction and, and, and friendship and the, and the joint project of human community. But she was also unbelievably gracious and hospitable and, uh, and proactively kind. Our home was a revolving door of newcomers to our community, homestays, immigrants growing up. She just always was passionate about transforming the outsider to the insider, making the stranger a friend. So she was a great example of, of this hallmark of true civility to my brothers and I growing up. But I always kind of question these social norms. I am constitutionally allergic to authority, Andrew. I don't like, you know, being told what to do just for its own sake. So I question these norms. You know, why do we why do we set our why do we use forks at all? Why do we set our, our tables just so? So I had these questions in the back of my head my entire life. But my mother promised me that they would lead to success in work, school, and life. And she was right until I found myself working in politics. Until you had to live in uh, <laughs> Indianapolis, right? Pardon no, me. I'm teasing you until you yes. have to move to Indianapolis. Exactly. So I took a role in government in Washington, D.C., 2017, 2018. And in that role, everything I saw about um, the world made me question what I thought I knew to be true. Uh, it, question, it made me, it shook my confidence in the rules of politeness to, to, to facilitate um, human, human relationships. I saw these two extremes, Andrew. On one hand, there were people who were hostile, aggressive, had sharp elbows, and they were willing to uh, do or say, um, step on anyone to get ahead and gain their goals. On the other hand, Andrew, there were people that at first I thought were my people. They were uh, polished and poised and polite. But I learned, Andrew, that these were the people who would smile at me and flatter me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And that really perplexed me because growing up, my mother had said that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough, but ruthless and cruel. And so that helped clarify for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. We are speaking with... Um... Alexandra Hudson, who has a new book out, it's out tomorrow, The Soul of Civility, 
timeless principles to heal society and ourselves. Uh, Lexi, some people are watching this and thinking to themselves, we have the right to be angry. You talk about this incivility and atomization, but there are socioeconomic reasons for it. Uh, people are angry about the nature of our economic system, uh, the massive inequalities in wealth and status in this society. Don't we have a right to be angry? There are many important conversations in our world today that we need to be having. There's no question about that. What we need, though, is tools to help us have those conversations. And right now, as a society, we're very confused about, how, about the proper way to go about the, the, these important conversations. Uh, there is, as I mentioned, a core part of my book is that there's this essential difference between civility and politeness. That, that uh, and I learned this in government, that politeness is etiquette, it's manners, it's technique, it's external. It's superficial. That's what that's what that's what politeness is. Civility, by contrast, is internal. It's a disposition of the heart that sees other human beings and our, and our fellow citizens as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect in light of that. And that crucially, Andrew, sometimes actually respecting someone requires being impolite. It requires telling a hard truth. It requires engaging in robust debate, breaking the rules of etiquette and propriety and politeness for the sake of actually respecting someone. And we, today we have two, two contingents. One contingent says, you know, all we need is more civility and politeness in public life, and that's going to help heal our, our divides. And the other contingent says, no, civility and politeness, they are part of the problem. They're tools of the patriarchy, white supremacists. They're tools of people in positions of power to keep the powerless powerless. And my point is that both these contingents fail to make this essential distinction between civility and politeness. Again, politeness is manners, uh, technique, etiquette. Civility is the inner disposition of actually respecting others as our moral equals that sometimes requires being impolite. And we need to make this distinction as a society to understand what are the terms and modes of engagement that are actually going to help us um, have converse, the conversations, the essential um, conversations we need to be having. Let's not settle for politeness that, that tone polices, that silences, um, that oppresses and represses dissent. Let's engage, and instead revive civility that, that, again, respects others enough to have these important conversations. Doesn't this kind of go without saying? I mean, this isn't news that we can disagree in a civil way. What, what, what are you saying that's new? This essential distinction between civility and politeness is new. Have you heard of Samuel Johnson, Andrew? Had the 1755 yes, dictionary, the very first uh, English dictionary. Um, he he defines civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility, and every dictionary since then has done the same. If you go to dictionary.com right now, civility is defined, defined in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility, and because we lack that etymological clarity about these concepts, we lack a conceptual clarity about what we want more of uh, in society, what we should be aiming for as a society. As I learned in government, people can be well-mannered and polite, yet be ruthless and cruel and manipulative and not actually very respectful of others. Conversely, it's entirely possible 
to be impolite, to break the rules of propriety knowingly or unknowingly. For example, Andrew, when I was in government, I worked alongside members of America's disability community. And there I learned firsthand that it's, it's entirely possible to not be a bad person while, while not following rules of propriety and politeness or political correctness even. For, for no fault of, of one's own. That does not, not having manners and polish doesn't make one a bad person. So there is this mismatch between um, inner and outer that we need to be mindful of. Again, it's possible to, ha to have the manners and not be good or have bad motivations, possible to be good and not have the manners. So what does it look like for us as a country to recognize that, that mismatch, this essential distinction between civility and politeness? And how can that, I hope that my book helps us have a more productive conversations in light of that. I think you're right, Andrew, people intuit this difference, but so far it hasn't been crystallized, especially in a, in a, in a book. Are you in, in some ways inspired from antiquity, from classical civilization? Do you have models from Greece or Rome? These kind of books often do. Of course, you see the, the cover of my book um, behind me, um, that the olive branch is homage to the classical Greco-Roman uh, world that has been influential on me, but also it's helped build the society that we live in now. Um, the olive branch is also a symbol of, of peace and reconciliation, and I'm hopeful that, that, um, that my book uh, is this tool of, of reconciliation and conversation across differences that we, that we need to have right now. There's, there's layers of symbolism to, um, to, to, to the cover that I'm happy to go into, but yes, many models from, from antiquity. I love Plutarch. For example, Plutarch was this Greco-Roman moralist famous for his biographies. He has a great example for us all today. In his biographies, he, he was of Greek descent, but a, a citizen of, of Rome, like lived during the Roman Empire. And he wrote these biographies, putting into dialogue famous Greeks and famous Romans. And he would tell their life stories side by side and then compare them, explicitly drawing insights from their lives for his readers to help live their lives better. And he was ruthless about um, how he approached, and he, he was categorical with how he approached these, these, these life stories. He didn't have any Greek or Roman bias. Wherever he saw virtue in the lives of Greeks or Romans that he compared, he praised it and said, look, we can learn from this. Wherever he saw vice, he condemned it. And I think today we often uh, want to praise or condemn things based on our, you know, what our, our tribe, we want to defend people who are like us or who we like and condemn people who are not like us. Or we're hesitant to praise people from or, or see praiseworthy things in the opposite side, the people that we disagree with on, on XYZ or the, from the opposite political party. But Plutarch's a great model for us. Wherever he saw good behavior, he praised it. Bad behavior, he, um, he condemned it. And, and that gets, that's kind of the idea that, I, that inspired me to uh, unpack this concept in my book of unbundling people. We live in this era of strange perfectionism where we expect someone to uh, come out fully formed in their ideas and, and fully perfect. Um, but, but as Alexander Pope said, uh, wrote, to err is to be human, to forgive is, 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 is divine. And yet we, we have no um, grace, no empathy for people who make mistakes and we're, we're ruthless. We want to destroy people for, for mistakes they make, for, for, for um, misdeeds, for saying the wrong thing. What, is it, what does it mean, what might it mean to see the part, the mistake in light of the whole, the ir irreducible dignity and worth of our fellow human beings. That's kind of the mental framework of unbundling people, seeing the part in light of the whole that maybe help us, hopefully help us move back this era 
of strange perfectionism and reclaim a full, more nuanced view of personhood and human dignity. We're speaking with Alexandra Hudson, wonderful new book out, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. We're living in an age of great, what some people call disorder, and I want to thank uh, the sponsor of this show, the podcast uh, Disorder. It's a wonderful new show. I strongly suggest everyone uh, subscribes. You're already subscribing to Keenon. It goes very well with Keenon. Uh, I think they're in their fifth show right now. Uh, you can check them out at Twitter as well. It's um, uh, their, their, their fifth one just came out on October the 3rd uh, on migration, climate, and our era of disorder. Uh, it's presented by uh, my friend Jason Pack, uh, who's been on the show a couple of times, and Alex Hall Hall, an ex-British diplomat based in Washington, D.C. It's essential listening. Strongly suggest you subscribe. We're going to run a short ad and, uh, for, for, this, for the Disorder Pod, and then we'll be back with Alexandra Hudson to figure out how we can create more moral order to our contemporary world. So don't go away, anyone. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And this is Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? How did we get here? And what can we do to fix it? The Disorder podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. And Lexi, uh, you're, you should uh, subscribe, I think, to this podcast. Um, I think you will find it interesting in terms of international, the disorder of international relations. I think what you're talking about is a civic disorder, a disorder perhaps of the soul of individuals. Is that perhaps the heart of your book or maybe, shall we say, the soul of your book? that we that become the, disordered by modernity or post-modernity? It's a, it's a great insight. Thank you for, for that question, Andrew, that yes, um, the, the, the soul of civility, the title of my book pays homage to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a, a very important intellectual influence on me and my work and, and this book. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he talks about how uh, segregation harms both parties. It harms both the segregated and the segregator. It harms the segregated by giving them a false sense of inferiority and the segregator by giving them a false sense of superiority. So it's mutually um, harmful and it, and it deforms the soul, he says, of, of, of both parties. And that clarified for me an essential part of the argument I make about civility, why civility matters and why incivility is, is harmful. That uh, incivility, it's easy to look around us and we hear people all the time saying the stakes are too high and these battles are too important to respect the other side. That uh, we ha all bets are off, we have to do whatever it takes to win. And the problem with that sort of rhetoric, it, 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 fail, it fails to recognize this, this idea that, that Dr. King clarified for me, that when we're uncivil to others, we don't actually ever win. We hurt others by, by degrading their dignity as human beings. And when we act in ways that degrade the personality of others, as, as, as Dr. King said, we, we deform our own soul, too. We become less human and less humane.
And so there, there is no nice guys finishing last and, and the bad guys who are willing to do anything to, to win, winning or getting ahead. That um, just as civility, kindness, respect, hospitality, grace, uh, empathy for, for others, uh, that is mutually ennobling. Incivility, cruelty, malice, destructive, um, yeah, harm towards others. That is that is mutually mutually harmful. So what do we do? You've talked about Plutarch. You've talked about Martin Luther King. I'm sure you have some references in your book to Montaigne and and and, and other essayists like this. You've talked about porching, which sounds an interesting idea. Although I have to admit, my neighbors never invited me to their porch. What are people supposed to do in the America of 2023, which some people believe is teetering on the verge of civil war? What can people do? Your book suggests that we need not just to blame others. We can always blame Trump or Black Lives Matter or Putin or Hamas or the Israelis. But what do we do to reform ourselves, Alexi? Well, Andrew, it could start with you. You know, you said that your neighbors have never invited you over. Have you invited them? Maybe that's where you start. That's part of the theory of social change. I I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm a very good model for you because I don't want to see my neighbors. Well, there you go. I mean, my wife's go. the opposite of me and she's very busy talking to our neighbors, but I'm happy to avoid them. <laughs> but I'm probably a terrible model. I'm probably the reason why the world's fallen to pieces. <laughs> so... Part of my theory of social change in the book is, is showing each of us, I hope my readers walk away with a fortified appreciation of the fragility, but also the, the possibility and the fruits, the, the abundance, the joy of life with others, um, but that it's also very fragile and that we, we each have a role to play in our everyday in supporting or detracting from, from the joint project of living well with others, that the joint project of self-governance that is a democracy, that we each have a role to play in supporting it or detracting from it. And that it behooves us not to focus on what's happening in Washington or the scandal of the day or you know who's saying what, what, what the debate of the day is, that, that we can change ourselves like Joanna Taft did. She's, she, she recognizes that she can't control what's happening in DC, but she's choosing to double down from her front porch and make her community more beautiful, her family stronger, her neighbors fortifying. So is it a kind of a retreat in a way from politics? Because what happens if you go over to your neighbor and you're a Democrat and your neighbor's a Republican and they start talking about how the last election was fixed, um, that it that Trump really won or vice versa. You're a Trump person and you go over and your neighbor starts telling you that Trump deserves to be in jail. Are you supposed to keep your mouth shut? You're supposed to smile and be polite like your mom. Um, what are you supposed to do? That that tick that we all have to make politics the first thing that that you know the th is the thing that we talk about. That very much is part of the problem. My final chapter in my book is on misplaced meaning and forgiveness, and I, I, I talk about how we've allowed politics to become part of every aspect of our lives. Virtually all aspect of our lives has a political dimension to it. Where we live, where we grocery shop, what newspaper we read, what sports team we root for, where we send our kids to school, that these previously you know, trans or supra-political issues or apolitical decisions now um, have a political dimension, a political valence 
to them. And that's the problem. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. You know, politics is a means of um, helping us grapple with and navigate life across deep difference. Um, in a democracy, navigating life across deep difference, that, that's what we have to do as a democracy. But we can we are overdoing democracy. And as a result, we are undermining democracy. So we have to relegate politics to its proper place. And we have to recover things in our lives that fill us up that, that are apolitical, that, that we can have conversations with our neighbors just about, um, you know, complaining about the potholes in the road or, or just, you know, enjoying a burger together and a beer. That, that well, What does that mean, re re relegating politics to its proper place? What is its it proper place? That, that it shouldn't be the all-consuming single thing that dominates our, our psyche. So but if it does, if, it, if, 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 we're, if we're defined by our sense of gender or sexuality or race or economic status. Are you saying that's a bad thing? No, but it's not the only aspect of who we are. As these traditional touchstones of community, faith, uh, family, um, civil society, community, neighborhoods, these have do been documentedly uh, been on the decline in recent decades. And these have been traditional sources of, of from which people derived their their meaning. And so as those have been on the decline, people ha have um, have misplaced their meaning in, in, in politics and in public issues. Where now, Andrew, it's not just, you know, you think one way on an issue and I think another way. It's no, our difference, the fact that you think differently in me than me on this t topic, I, I perceive it as an existential threat to who I am because my identity is in this issue or, or, or in politics now. And we're no longer able to have rational, calm conversation. It's no longer reasonable minds disagreeing when I'm put into fight or flight because I feel like my identity is under assault because of this conversation, because of our disagreement and difference. And we see this in our public discourse all the time where people are easily triggered and they they're apoplectic because of a, a because they're they're encountering someone who disagrees with them and and so i i, I take uh as a model for this um uh, th this ecology of the soul put forth by a theist by this scottish theologian named uh named chalmers um and and he talks about um it's called it's a lovely essay called the the uh, expulsive power of a new affection. So he's talking about unhealthy affections and addictions in one's soul, um, that, that it's not enough just to say, okay, you know, if we have an addiction to a substance, like, you know, stop loving that substance, stop being addicted. We can't just snap our fingers and stop an addiction. We, ha and this is, we see this in the, the philosophies of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and Weight Watchers. That if we Are you saying then that our addiction to politics is like being addicted to alcohol or yes. fast yes. food? Absolutely. Same with same with the, our, our addiction and compulsion to, to news as well. This has been very well documented in the research that um, that, that we're addicted to that. I wonder whether your your turn against politics, your argument that the only way we can be civil to one another is to get beyond politics, that it reflects a retreat from democracy itself, a retreat from difference. Um, Perhaps it's no coincidence that you you pick a number of the Stoic philosophers and even Plutarch who were living at, in, in difficult political times, who turned away from democracy, who turned towards the soul. There is a, you talk about theologians of the soul, there is a Christian tradition that suggests that one should turn inward. Uh, and to me, it's it's a little 
dangerous, Lexi, that we sh you're, you're suggesting to people, turn away from politics. It's bad from you. It's addictive. Go back to your soul, whatever that is. Be polite to yourself and to everybody else, but retreat from the big issues, the important issues that shape our world. That's what troubles me about your argument. I'm, I'm encouraging people to not focus and exert emotional, psychological, physical energy on things over which they can't control. That's not a good use of anyone's time or, or, limited, or limited resources. That by focusing on what we can control, like for example, I think, that I wrote this book, it's a creative child you know, of mine, but I have two children of my own. And I think that making them the best people that they can be, modeling you know, integrity and character for them and, and cultivating their hearts and minds, that that is the best thing that I can do for the world. You know, despite this book, I hope that my book does, does help make the world a better and brighter place for my children to grow up in. But I think focusing on, on what I can control, which is, which is helping make my children the best that they can be, that that is an important part of what I can do to make the world a better place. Are you going giving on Twitter, up on, going on, on agencies? Going on. At, you know, Donald Trump and, and, being, and losing emotional energy, being angry about what's happening in Washington, no one cares. That is not making the world a better place. But but me making my children, um, cultivating them, making them as, as good as they can be, that can make the world better. Are you giving up then, in a sense, on human agency in terms of changing the world? You're saying, well, you can't change anything in D.C., so just give up and focus on bringing up decent kids. I mean, there's no reason why you can't be a, a responsible, loving, caring parent and be a good citizen and be That's involved in politics. That's the absolute opposite of what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting relocate your agency on what you can control. Don't pretend, don't buy into the illusion that, that you can control um, you know, what, what a given politician says on any given day or what, what the tweet of the scandal of the day is. Don't pretend that you getting angry about the headline of the day is gonna make any difference. But how can you, in your life, the way that you live your life, make the world a better and brighter place? Well, Alexandra Hudson, uh, you have behaved in the most civil of ways in terms of our conversation, the soul of civility, timeless principles to heal society and ourselves. I don't personally agree with what you're saying, but uh, I respect what you're saying. Is this an example of a, a civil conversation between people who don't agree? It is. You telling me that you find weakness in my argument and me telling you why I, I believe what I believe and you hearing me out, that's absolutely civil. The polite conversation would be to be for you to, um, you know, polish over uh, the difference. That, that's what the etymology of these two words uh, supports the distinction I make. The Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish. So the polite approach to this conversation would have been to minimize our difference, sweep it under the rug, uh, po polish over it. The etymology of civility is kivitas, which is all things related to citizenship and uh, citizens in the city. Civility is the conduct befitting a citizen, it's the habits of citizenship that requires being impolite, requires saying, I disagree with you and here's why. So thank you for your, your, your civility as well, Andrew. Well, we don't sweep anything on the, to the rug on Keenan. Uh, and best of luck, uh, Lexi, with the book. Have to have you back on. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew.